what do you believe in? It's a good question. What we believe in sets the course for so many things, like spending and saving, living and dying, being forgiven and forgiving. Oh, yes, what we believe in sets a course for so many other things in our lives. Zero to 60 is the name of our preaching series through the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is an inspired diary chronicling the main events of the church from its birth to age 60 years. And would it not make sense that the Christians today, us, we ought to believe the same things that Christians believed first in the baby church's initial days? After all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and yes forever, Hebrews 13, verse 8. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, in what or in whom did the baby church believe? Three points this morning. Point one is they believed in each other. The church believed in each other. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, if you would see that in your copies of God's Word. Acts 1, verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Let me interject. That was because they had been witnesses to the ascension of Christ back to heaven on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They believed in each other. There they were, obediently in that upper room, most likely the same upper room where the Lord enjoyed a last supper with his closest followers. There they were, waiting obediently in that upper room for the promised Holy Spirit to be given from heaven. And at the end of verse 14, there's a key phrase. And this phrase implies that those first followers of Christ who became the charter members, as it were, of the church, believed in each other. The phrase is with one accord. And all these continued, verse 14, with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So these obedient believers were in the upper room, obediently waiting for the Holy Spirit, and there in that room, they were in one accord. We have to understand what that is. One accord is a Christ-based unity. A Christ-based unity. And may I point out that because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same to yesterday, today, and yes, forever, then our unity in him is not to be fluctuating. It's to be steady as he is. And so to be in one accord with one another is to have a Christ-based unity. 
That is, they believed in each other, and so should we believe in each other. A Christ-based unity is very important to the Lord. In fact, he warns against disunity in the New Testament, and he scolds disunity that appeared in some of the ancient first-century churches that the New Testament addresses. And this phrase, with one accord, actually comes up six times in the book of Acts. That's how important this Christ-based unity, this believing in one another is to the whole health of the early church and to the health of the 21st century church as well. So they believed in each other. Do we believe in each other, Calvary? (laughs) I think we do. And I'm so grateful to the Lord that I can make that assessment. I believe that we who are part of Calvary Bible Church believe in each other. Look at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, and then I will stop at the comma. This verse tells us, interestingly, that the little band of believers in that associated with that upper room was 120 persons. Coincidentally, when we have in-person church with a 30% reduction in our overall sanctuary seating capacity, 30% is roughly 120 persons in this sanctuary. So the last time you were in in in-person worship, maybe last Sunday when we had that privilege, when you looked around, you saw roughly 120 believers, including the balcony. That was the number of followers of Christ that the church began with in that upper room when the Spirit of God was given. Now, as they waited in that upper room for the Holy Spirit, they knew that persecution was coming to them. It would not be a walk in the park to be a follower of the one that was crucified by the Roman Empire at the cheerleading of the Jewish nation. And they knew they were going to be persecuted, and friends... I believe the church of Jesus Christ that stands on the word of God and the supremacy of Jesus Christ is going to be persecuted in the Bahamas as well. I don't know when. I don't know how. But these are adversarial days for the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. And why would we expect to be exempt from that climate of aggression and hostility against Jesus Christ and his followers because we live in Bahama land. They were there in that upper room um, waiting for the Holy Spirit obediently and they knew Christ had said that they would receive power after he left to be Christ's witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there they were waiting for the Spirit of God in one accord, believing in each other, mindful that persecution was very real and right before them, and that the power that the Holy Spirit would endow each of them with when he came upon them, whenever that would be, turned out 10 days later after ascension, that that power was given so they would share their faith locally, regionally, and globally. So the first place, They believed in each other. May I just hasten to say, what did that look like? Well, it looked like worshiping together, praying together. By the way, we do that on Monday nights by Zoom. Standing together, telling each other the truth, 
loving each other as brothers and sisters, serving each other, believing the best about each other, only speaking positively about anyone who's not present in the conversation. By the way, the first church I pastored, we were in a rec room in Canada of believers in the church I was pastoring, and a name of a believer from our fellowship came up in the circle of about six people. And a negative comment was made about the absent believer and the host homeowner in the circle. He was an optometrist. He said, we are not in the practice of talking negatively about anyone in the church family, especially when they're not present. Shut it down. It needed to be shut down. And so the first thing the fledging church members believed was that they believed in each other. The second thing is they believed in prayer. They believed in prayer. Would you look at verse 14, please? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. I'll stop at the comma. They believed in prayer. Skipping down to verses 24 and 25, same chapter, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these you have chosen. They were looking to replace Judas Iscariot with an eyewitness of the ministry and resurrected Christ. We call them apostles. And they were choosing between two men. And to make the choice, they prayed because they believed in prayer. They asked the Lord to show which of the two possible successors to Judas Iscariot should they select to be an apostle. They believed in prayer. Verse 25, to take take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. By the way, Judas Iscariot was not saved and his own place was not heaven. He's called the son of perdition by Jesus Christ. He was not a believer. He was following Christ for a wrong agenda, for uh, material prosperity being restored to the nation of Israel from being under the taxation of Rome. Judas Iscariot was not regenerate. Well, they believed in prayer. They prayed to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. And they prayed about so many other things as well. In fact, when you scan the book of Acts, you see that the first believers were regularly praying Almost every chapter of the book of Acts records an incident where the church of Jesus Christ was in prayer. If you scan the book, they prayed for guidance, courage, grace to die for Christ, miracle-working power, healing, prison release, missionary journeys, and lost persons to be saved, just to name a few of the things that evidence to us that they believed in prayer. And they believed in prayer, and so must we. We must believe in prayer. I think I've told you before of the lawsuit in Michigan. There was a Bible-believing church that had a neighbor, a bar, and the church prayed regularly that the bar would be shut down, and they told the bar owner that they were praying as a church that his bar would be shut down. Well, in due time, lightning struck the bar, and it burned to the ground. And the bar, the bar owner sued the church. <laughs> and the church hired a lawyer to defend them, to say that they weren't the cause of the bar, of the bar burning down. 
And this testimony was going on back and forth, and the judge eventually said in the courtroom, one thing is clear. The bar owner believes in prayer, and the church doesn't. (laughs) I mean, really? Hire a lawyer to say you had nothing to do with the (laughs) bar burning down, and you've been praying for it to stop its business? Think about it. So what we've seen so far is that the early church believed in each other, and we must believe in each other. The early church believed in prayer, and we certainly must believe in prayer. The third thing that they believed is they believed in God's leading. The church, the first church, believed in God's leading. Let's pick up chapter 1 at verse 16 to see their belief in God being a leading God starting at verse 16 through verse 23. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us, obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, that's the 30 pieces of silver that they paid him to betray Christ, which, by the way, was the common Uh, price that the Old Testament law established for buying an ordinary garden variety slave. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, all his entrails gushed out. That is, he hung himself, was decomposing in the heat of Palestine, and eventually he burst. Ignominious. Verse 19. And it came up became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So the Old Testament predicted the suicide of the betrayer of Christ and the need to replace him with church leadership. Verse 21, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, that's the ascension, one of these must become witnesses with us of his resurrection. That's the definition of an apostle. Someone who is a witness and part of Christ's public ministry from the onset of water baptism in the Jordan until the conclusion of ascension after resurrection They needed a person, a man who had been witness to all of that to become an apostle. We don't have apostles today. Verse 23, and they proposed two. These are two nominees. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And we will stop there for the moment. And so the church believed in God's leading. They believed in God's leading with reference to who they should select to be an apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. But let's talk about the theology of them believing that God leads and the theology of us believing that God still leads. We must believe, if God is big, and he is, that he leads us both in the small things and the large things of life. By the way, can you name a large thing to God? Relative to God's power and infinity, is there anything that's a large thing? 
We must believe both in God's personal leading of us in what we deem to be big and what we deem to be small. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was physically no longer going to be with them after the ascension, but they knew and they banked on the fact that they still would be led of God. I mean, before the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, here in chapter 1, they had the word of God, the scriptures to guide them, and they had prayer. And then they had the tremendous gift given them in chapter 2 of Acts of the Holy Spirit. So in trio, they then had the word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit, and they were confident in their belief that God was going to lead them. If you go ahead to chapter 6 and verse 4, the church is growing between chapter 2 and when we get to chapter 6, there was a division of labor that was necessary within the leadership of the church. And in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, we read, these are the elders speaking after the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the food distribution. They said, the elders said of the baby church, but we elders will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this division of labor when the church grew numerically was necessary. And an office of deacon was created to serve the practical needs that were there in the body of Christ, the church, the Hellenistic widows who were needy. They were needing daily support of food. The elders said, deacons are going to be created to serve those tables in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. And the elders, not better than the deacons, just different, we're going to oversee the ministry of God's word to the fledging church and the spiritual oversight of the well-being of those who make up that church. And so they believed They had heard from God to lead them to create the office of deacon. There's so many examples in the book of Acts where you see that they had a resolute, unshakable, unwavering belief that God is a leading God. And so they say, we need deacons to help the widows because we're supposed to focus on the word of God and prayer and we can't do both. And so back then in that baby church, they believed in God's leading. But you know, Calvary Bible Church from her inception has believed in God's leading. We have believed in God's leading to even exist when Pastor Earl Weech left Evangelistic Temple based on doctrinal conviction to start this testimony and assembly. We have believed that God has led us to build all the buildings we have built. We have believed in God's leading to call the various pastors which the church has called over her history. But we just don't believe in the past leading of God for Calvary Bible Church. We believe in the present leading of God for us as well. That God presently is leading us to wisely allocate our reduced financial givings due to COVID. We are trusting the Lord to lead us currently to evaluate our current ministries for the best future possible for our church. We also believe that God is leading us to see the Holy Spirit specifically direct each of us in the workplace, in the neighborhood, to lost people who need to know the gospel because they need to know Christ. Oh yes, we believe that God led us in the past as a church. We believe that God is leading us in the present as a church, but we also believe that God is leading us in the future and that he will lead us to send new missionaries to a lost and a perishing world from amongst our own. 
We're trusting God to lead us to the future that we will respond on the Bible's authority to the threat of secular humanism that's washing over the world, including the Caribbean. We believe the Lord will lead us in the future to be faithful to the word and to the Son of God, the head of the church, until the rapture twinkling of the eye that catches us up and out of here. Oh, yes, we believe God has led us in the past, is leading us in the present, and will lead us in the future. And so this whole concept that the baby church believed in God leading and our church still believing in God leading leads me to pick out three doctrines about God that cause it to be reasonable for us to expect that he will lead us. I'll overview three right now. We believe it reasonable to believe that God is a leading God because of God's personality, also because of God's sovereignty, and third, because of God's care for his own. Let's consider God's personality first. God's personality means that he is not an it. He is a he. He is a person. He has intellect, emotion, and will. Our God thinks, our God feels, and our God chooses. God wills certain things revealed to us in his word, and they always are consistent with his character. And so it's reasonable for us to believe that God is leading because he has personality. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Great benediction. Listen. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work, watch, to do his will. His will, not ours. To do his will, working in you that what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, yes, our God, it's reasonable to believe that he leads because he is personality. But there's more. It's reasonable for us to believe that God is a leading God because he is sovereign. He is the boss. He is large and he is in charge. Nothing takes him by surprise. He never wrings his hands in heaven and says, oh dear, look what happened down there now. What in the world will I do about it? He is sovereign. He is ruler over his universe. There is not one rogue molecule in all of his creation. I think R.C. Sproul made that correct observation. Um, Romans 8, 28, a well-loved verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. God has no... Uh, item in your particular life that he has no control over and that he's not shaping and fashioning and combining with all the other things to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life, which is to make you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday, but not as much like Jesus today as you will be tomorrow. It was theologian Michael Horton when asked, why pray If God is sovereign, Horton said, why pray if he isn't? Think about that. God is sovereign. It's reasonable then for us to believe that he's a leading God. He's not passive or disinterested or unable. He's a leading God. 
And because our God is orchestrating everything in each of our lives to make us more like his son, we can and must expect him to lead us moment by moment by moment. But there's another reason why it's reasonable to believe that God is a leading God. It's his care for his own. His care for his own. Psalm 23, the well-beloved psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Among other verses in that psalm, he leads me beside quiet waters. He's a leading God. And because he is one who cares for his own like a perfect shepherd does sheep, we can expect him to lead us individually and as a church. That great pair of promises in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thy own understandings in all thy ways. Acknowledge him, and here's the promise, and he will direct your paths. He's a leading God, proactive, not reactive. And because our God cares about the paths we choose, we can expect him to lead us. Remember the Psalm 23 says, for his name's sake. We carry Christ's name around when we claim to be a Christian. We are carrying Christ's reputation around when we are a Christian every day. And does it not make sense then that God would want to lead us in the ways that he would want us to go so that his son's name would not be besmirched or smeared? Sure, it makes sense. He's a leading God. And so the sermon began with, what do you believe in? And we've considered some of what the first church believed in. And because they believed in those things, and Christ is the same yesterday and today and yes, forever, we too must believe in the same things that they did on the cusp of being a church. Remember, we've seen they believed in each other. They believed in prayer. And they believed in God's leading. And following the scriptural example that they give to us, we, Calvary Bible Church 2021, we, in a pandemic, we must believe in each other. We must believe in prayer. And we must believe in God's leading. Okay, so you say, I get it, Pastor. Then I ask you this. I'm glad you get it. So what? So what? Is this all theory? Is this all something you just write in a notebook or in the margin of your Bible and walk away from tomorrow? What difference does it make that we believe in each other, we believe in prayer, and we believe in God's leading? What difference does that make? Well, let me get concrete and specific, starting with the difference believing in each other ought to make. Because we believe in each other, church, we trust each other. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. We look out for each other. Where necessary, we defend each other. We don't run down or slander each other. We don't gossip, and we don't let anyone else gossip about each other. We encourage each other. We pray for each other. 
We tell each other the truth in love. We see the best in each other, and we are not suspicious about each other. And we forgive each other. To sum it up, because we believe, believe in each other, we live in one accord. Keep living in one accord. Next, let's go to the believing in prayer. What difference should that make? Well, let me start by saying I don't think there's even one person viewing today who would say and not be joking, I've got prayer down pat. Or I don't need to improve my prayer life. None of us, including me, would say that. With that assumption that none of us feels that we've arrived at the discipline of prayer, how do we improve our prayer lives? Let me give you some concrete and practical action plans for that. We can get up earlier each day to pray. Set the alarm earlier. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Or we can set times, say three times in a day, when we will pray. Say morning, noon, and night. Maybe before you eat, three meals. This is making three daily appointments with your God to pray. They knew when Daniel was going to pray in Babylon so they could arrest him for breaking the king's edict because he was predictable. They had watched. They knew what times of the day Daniel prayed. And they sent the soldiers over to arrest him when he was in one of those predictable, scheduled, habitual times of prayer. We could do that. We could set three times a day when we pray. Or if praying one whole hour is daunting to us, and probably it is, we can pray six times a day, 10 minutes each. That makes an hour, right? Um, another idea, before you do any task in a day, pray. And after you finish any task in your day, pray. These are ways that we can develop a stronger and more consistent prayer life. Or you fill in the blank. What would work for you? By the way, all those suggested concrete ways to improve prayer life are not original to me. I took them from Chuck Lawless's little pamphlet, Lord Teach Us Pastors to Pray, which is available on the internet from Church Answers. All right. So let me speak from a personal uh, viewpoint. For me personally, what helps me pray is to keep a prayer journal, to write the things that I'm praying for in a simple uh, notebook and to know my list, to pray through my list. And when God answers, to highlight one of the things I had been praying about that he answered. I highlight it in yellow highlighter and say how he answered. A prayer journal, maybe that'll help you. Also, I learned uh, years and years and years ago that I can pray with my eyes open when I'm walking or exercising or driving. I can pray with my eyes open. Often I do. Or I pray immediately with someone who asks me to pray about something. Pastor, would you pray about X, Y, Z? Yes, I will. Let's start right now. And we pray. These are just some things that have helped my prayer life. I've got a long ways to go, believe me. 
So let's recap. So far, we've seen specific ways that believing in each other and believing in prayer can change us. And now, still by way of application, how should believing that God leads us change us? Well, first of all, we need to slow down enough to be led of God. God doesn't lead a life that's going past the speed limit. Slow down. Let him lead you through his word and by his spirit. We must also find out if God's word addresses any matter that we are seeking leading about. And when God's word does address a matter we are seeking leading about, we better know what God's word says about that. You can do that through a concordance or a, a search at a, a site like Bible Gateway Bible, Bible Gateway, that's Bible Gateway. Fear, marriage, worry, just punch in these words. You get all kinds of verses. See what God has said first in his book. That's his leading. Or we must realize that sometimes God brings into our path and into our sphere of influence and blessing people that are more mature spiritually than we are, and they're further down the road with the word of God and prayer, and they have something to say to us about a matter we're seeking God's leading on. Many times in my life, I've been led by mature Christians who gave me advice that lined up with Scripture. And maybe the most important thing about practically believing that God is the leading God, commit to God that you'll do what he leads you to do before you know what he wants you to do. That's big. God delights in showing us what he wants us to do in a matter if he knows ahead of time we've said, whatever you lead me to do, Lord, I'll do it. I'm not going to treat you leading me like an eBay purchase. 30 days risk-free. Return for any reason for a full refund. The will of God is not an eBay purchase. It's a submitting to the authority of God in our lives, the good authority, the loving authority of God in our lives, and saying, God, I don't know what you want me to do about X, Y, Z, but I'll promise you, Lord, when you show me what it is, whatever you show me what it is, I will do it. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So what do you believe in? Makes all the difference Everywhere you might turn, what you believe in makes all the difference. Let's believe in what the scriptures tell us the first church believed in. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and yes, forever. Living Lord, we close this time in prayer and confess we believe in each other. We believe in prayer and we believe in your leading. Help us to live each day just like we do. Amen.